The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, July 6th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and I am in a saucy mood today. So news, it comes down the pike. It comes flitting across our consciousness. It comes thwumped via the pneumatic tube that is the internet. And it's up to me to contextualize it for you, to explain it, to put it in perspective. Because so often, world and national events seem to have no rhyme nor reason. Well, I've long sought to bring reason to this endeavor, but I have neglected the rhyme. So let's debut Rhyming the News. No doubt you've heard many of these top stories. Dateline Avon, Ohio, man from United Arab Emirates, tackled by police for being man from United Arab Emirates. There is a male in a full headdress with multiple disposable phones pledging his allegiance or something to ISIS. And now we rhyme the news. The mayor of Avon said Middle East patrons have nothing to fear from us here. Still, I'd investigate different suburbs of Cleveland to celebrate Eid al-Fatir. Next, to Washington, D.C. and PBS. On Tuesday, the Public Broadcasting Service said that it should have informed viewers that footage from previous year's fireworks displays were used on its ostensibly live program the night before. We expect PBS to admit, well, yes, to charges they occasionally bore us. Did they just hire jerks to fake some fireworks? What's next? Barney, a fake Tyrannosaurus? All right, one more to England and the Conservative Party's first round of voting. Stephen Crabb, 34. Dr. Liam Fox, 16. Michael Gove, 48. Andrea Leadsom, 66. Theresa May, 165. The Fox and the Crab both hoped they could nab the leadership post with the Tories. But Gove, May, and Ledsom had more votes and then some. Now back to Beatrix Potter stories. On the show today, we'll keep up with the theme of something different. You ready? In the spiel, Tony Blair's vainglorious arguments. And in the other spiel, the mid-show spiel, Twinkies. That's right, a mid-show spiel made possible by two interviews. We're having a postal postcard, but first, the ethics of reporting on mass shooters. When the shooter in Orlando killed 49 people, he wanted a lot of things. And of course, his uh, heart and mind was filled and twisted with hate. He wanted publicity. He probably wanted to outdo past shooters. That's what experts tell us. There is a game of one-upsmanship. And that's one of the reasons why I just say the shooter in Orlando. I don't even say his name. But it's not that cut and dry a call. Um, When I read the New York Times, I would not expect an organization like that not to, just in the name of news, tell you who the shooter was. In fact, I'm always fascinated by stories about their all of these shooters, their lives, their motivations, people who saw, saw warning signs. That's good journalism. On the other hand, all this publicity, experts tell us, might very well be stoking fires elsewhere. Joining me now is Bruce Shapiro. He's the executive director of the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma, which is at Columbia University. And we're going to talk about covering shootings like this. Hello, Bruce. Glad to be here. So if I put you in charge of MSNBC or CNN, but I said, don't worry about ratings, what would you do in terms of the question of naming the shooter? 
Well, you know, this is a, a very hotly debated question in journalism right now. You know, coming out of, for example, the Aurora shootings, there were family members who specifically called on news organizations to not name mass shooters. I don't quite go there. I think that we do, as journalists, have a responsibility to explore the biographies, the motivations, the histories that lead people to do unimaginable things. And I think also that it's not clear that publicity in a narrow sense is what is always driving these people. On the other hand, I do think that in the news business, we have too often focused on the unimaginable evil of a perpetrator at the expense of a proper consideration of the victims of violence. I think also that there's a way that survivors, families often experience coverage very much as the criminal justice system treats survivors, in which people become exhibits, people become evidence in the trial by news, in this case, of a shooter. So if I were in charge of NBC, of MSNBC, I would probably be looking to minimize or reduce the amount of obsessive attention to the shooter, making sure that when we are using the shooter's name or when we are making him the subject of coverage, we're doing so in a way that actually enriches the public's understanding of this event rather than just focusing on evil for evil's sake. And also I would make sure to remember whose story this really is and keeping the experiences of survivors front and center, even while we explore the very important questions of motivation and of policy consequence that come out of it. If I were at MSNBC and had this hypothetical, don't worry about ratings edict, I'd probably name him a couple times. I don't on this show. It's a luxury. But the other thing I'd worry about is constantly showing his picture, especially because these pictures are almost always pictures that, especially in this case, that he took, pictures of him posing. And I think that that has almost a compounding effect beyond saying his name, which you have to do factually. Well, certainly an image is never neutral, right? And as with any story, you need to be asking, does this image aid public understanding or does it impede public understanding? And there's not always a hard and fast rule. Look, after the Virginia Tech massacre, one of our major networks, uh, I believe it was NBC, received a videotape from the shooter. And they faced a very important ethical challenge. Do we broadcast this? Do we put up stills from this tape? Uh, the network consulted, actually, some forensic psychiatrists who advised that the real likelihood of, of inspiring copycats and the real likelihood of causing huge distress would come with repeated viewings over time. So if you are going to show it, they advise just do it for a very brief window. And in that case, a decision was made to use those images. And I think it did very rapidly change the public conversation from one about absolute evil to a conversation about mental health and a system that had failed. Now, in this case, I think you would 
need to ask, is it giving us the critical and essential information about this shooter? We don't, we still don't really know what the story really is. You talked about the survivors, but I'm thinking of victims for a second. So what does it say, the fact that I'm in the news and there's probably some point where I could do this, but I can't name a victim from Aurora or Virginia Tech or Columbine or Sandy Hook. Can't give you specific names of the victims, yet I could give you the names of the shooters in all those cases. And yet with 9-11, I don't know the names of actual hijackers. Of course, I know Osama bin Laden, but I know lots of names of victims. Is that just because I'm a New Yorker or is it because, say, the New York Times did the uh, Faces of Grief coverage so well? I do think proximity has something to do with it. If you live, for example, in Connecticut, as I do, I know individuals who are survivors of uh, people who were killed in Newtown, and I do know their names just as I know the name of the shooter. So I think with 9-11, proximity has ended. But the portraits of grief, the idea of using the traditional language of the obituary to commemorate the victims of mass shooting or mass casualty events is a real innovation of the last couple of decades. It was, I think, first invented by the Oklahoman after the Oklahoma City bombing. The unbearable suffering of survivors is partly about isolation, about the fear that their loved one will be forgotten or that no one can appreciate what they are going through. And I think we as journalists do a community service when we reconnect families isolated by grief to the larger ratifying community of news consumers. Bruce Shapiro is executive director of the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma. He's a contributing editor to The Nation. Thank you so much, Bruce. Glad to be here, Mike. And now, the mid-show spiel. Hostess, the company that owns Twinkies, is selling itself to an outside firm which intends to make a public stock offering. How appropriate that the maker of Ding Dongs will get a chance to ring the stock market's bell. The news was greeted by the business press with interest, caution, because Hostess has a lot of debt, and a fundamental question. What the hell is a Twinkie? We all know what a Twinkie is, but try to describe a Twinkie without saying, you know, it's a Twinkie. In print, Bloomberg went with the terse, quote, the sponge snack cakes filled with sweet cream. But that doesn't get there. That description could apply to crumpets, for Christ's sake. And where is the mention of the shape? So the Chicago Tribune called them the yellow sponge cake tube. Fine, but where's the cream? So the Wall Street Journal tried to avoid being the third blind man describing the elephant when it went with, quote, sugary mix of rich cream filling encased in a tubular yellow cake. That sounds almost clinical. Give me two cc's of Twinkie stat. At first, I thought this was a bit of Bono, lead singer of U2 disease, where you overexplain that which doesn't need defining. But then I realized that I had failed to take into account the international audience. I want to say, you know, in terms of our international audiences, they might not really know what's happening with this thing called the Twinkie. So this basically (laughs) is what it is here. It is this golden sponge cream filled cake that at least here in the U.S. is something that many of us grow on uh, for, for better or for worse. 
Perhaps a better explanation for the international audience would be to define Twinkies as the snack food personification of America itself. But the difficulty in defining a Twinkie as something other than, you know, a Twinkie, is that Twinkies are sui generis. And if you give them to the neighbor kids, you might get sued for being too generous. The quidness, the thingness of Twinkies cannot be conveyed or connoted without mentioning Twinkie. It's like Mickey Mouse. He's not a white-gloved, squeaky cartoon, lacking the usual trademark character flaw and speech impediment common in other cartoons. He's Mickey Mouse. And baseball, it's more than just a station-to-station bat-and-ball game whose enjoyment is dependent on sunflower seeds, chewing tobacco, beer, and a knowledge of OPS+. These things are just the things they are. A Twinkie is a Twinkie, which is to say an American institution that will probably kill us either via our investment portfolio or our cholesterol level. And this has been the Mid-Show Spiel. The history of the United States Post Office has been written, and that's a good thing it's been written now because it seems that the United States Post Office might well soon be history. Neither Snow Nor Rain, A History of the United States Post Office is the name of the book. Devin Leonard is its author. We're going to do a postcard about just the economics of the post office. And in the present, Devin, hello, welcome. In the present, Devin, it seems pretty obvious why the post office is having a hard time. Competition from the internet, competition from UPS and FedEx, but even going back a hundred years, when you would think would be the heyday of the post office, when you compare it to Europe, which had, or Britain, really successful, financially successful post office, the United States post office never made that much money. Why not? (laughs) Well, I I think for one thing, America is a much bigger country and it's just much more expensive to deliver mail to get it. And for the longest time, there was no direct route to California and, 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 and the postal service was shipping Mailed down through uh, through the Panama Canal and it, and it had you know, all the way back around around to, to, to California. And how long uh, did that take? Like during the gold rush, it would take oh, like three weeks, <laughs> four four weeks. So so it's just just the sheer size of America makes makes it very difficult. Whereas you know England's much more concentrated. So so therefore it's a lot cheaper to deliver mail. Yeah, and the cost though of the post, it's not necessarily because it's too cheap. For many years throughout the post office <laughs> history, compared to weekly wages, it was really expensive to send a letter. Right. Well, 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 really, in a lot of ways, what the Postal Service was really supposed to do early on was, 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 it was a cheap way of distributing uh, newspapers because, uh, you know, the founding fathers were concerned that, uh, you know, as Americans spread out, started spreading, going west across, across the, you know, you know, the continent, that there were, there, you know, the British were up in Canada, there were there, the, the French and, and uh, the, the, the Spanish were, were, at, were, at, were out in different parts of America. And so, George Washington especially wanted to wanted the mail to sort of connect everybody. Actually, sending a letter was much more expensive, and the, and and it was the the the, the system, the postage system, was really different uh, than than the way it is now. I mean, I mean for, for one thing, depending on how far you were sending the letter, well, it was progressively more expensive. That's not then, illogical, by the way. No, it's yeah. not. No, no. Some and subway systems work like that too. Also, depending on how many sheets you used, mm-hmm. uh, I guess if you use one sheet, it was you know, like six cents, and and if you used Two sheets of twice as much. There's six cents at a time when people were making fifty cents a week. Right. So, 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 so I mean, the thing is that you know, politicians sent mail for free, franking, so they sent lots of letters. Businesses did too, 
But ordinary people didn't send a lot of letters. Politicians not only sent letters, as you document. What else did they send home? Oh, their laundry. <laughs> there's, a, there's a famous story that's, that's always repeated, you know, maybe apocryphal, but, that, you know, that, that you know, a senator sent a piano through, through the mail. So, and also, if you were a postmaster, a local postmaster, you could send free mail. So, you know, all, all your friends would try to send mail through you. So um, that didn't help you know, the Postal Service break even either. There were a couple big reformations in their pricing policy, and they brought the price down a lot. To the point where wasn't there a false start, but then at one point it really worked and there became a national craze where people were telling loved ones, hey, just write a letter to write a letter. It would be stupid not to. It was in the 1840s they finally lowered lowered the price. And, and I believe it was it was 10 cents a, a, initially. And, and, and that was a huge discount. But people still didn't really pick up on it until they dropped it to, to about five. And then, and then everybody was just sort of, you know, there's examples in the book of people just saying, hey, I'm just, I'm just you know, writing it to write you because I can. I mean, yeah. People would give advice. Yeah. I think you quoted it from an etiquette column or something where someone gave advice saying, write a letter even if you don't have anything to say. <laughs> it's just a nice thing <laughs> to the do. The novelty of it. Yeah. yeah. And if we want to talk about innovation and economics in the post office, you have to talk about John Wanamaker of Wanamaker's department store, who was appointed by Benjamin Harrison. Tell me about Wanamaker. Well, the funny thing about uh, about Wanamaker was that, uh, you know, he went to go see Benjamin Harrison after Benjamin Harrison was elected, and, and uh, Benjamin Harrison wanted to give him a job, and he offered him this, you know, this he could be the secretary of the Navy. And Not Wanamaker bad. said, said, uh, oh, I, I want, I, I don't want some easy job. You, you, you know, I'm going to do something really hard. <laughs> so Harrison put him in charge of the, of the Postal Service. But Wanamaker is just a great figure, and, and because I mean, he's he's a great innovator. You know, he created this great department store in Philadelphia, and uh, you know, people never really seen anything like that. He sold you know all kinds of, all kinds of things, you know, under one roof. And he basically looked at the postal services, you know, you know, as a business, and sort of how do we how do we grow this thing? So, so one of the things that he saw was that people in rural areas they didn't get home delivery yet. So he he said, you know, why not? That'll just grow our business. We we don't deliver parcels. You know, you, know, you, you, can, you can't – we don't deliver anything, you know, more than four pounds. So let's start doing that. And he had a bunch of other things he wanted to do. And, of course, he ran into all sorts of opposition from the private parcel companies. There are people in, in, you know, in small towns, you know, people who ran bars. They depended on people coming into town to pick up their mail. So yeah. they didn't want home delivery. But a lot of these things eventually got adopted. But, uh, but it was long after he, you know, he'd left the Postal Service. But he was around and he was very happy about it. But it didn't make it profitable. No. And there were some other pricing schemes, one that I found fascinating. So it costs – how much does it cost to mail a letter? That's how we say, well, what's it cost to mail a letter? You don't think about how much it costs to receive a letter, but you used to have to. No, that was the only way it worked, Mike, was that you had to go to the post office. There was no home delivery. So you you went to the post office and they they gave you your mail and then, then, you know, you had had to pay for it. Well – a lot of people, you know, looked at their letters and thought either they were too expensive or, you know, they, you know, maybe it's from somebody they didn't like, so they just didn't accept it. So the postal service had this big dead letter operation. You know, the, what, what, you know, what, what do you do with all this stuff? You know, sometimes they, they you know, they find things inside letters and auction them off. But no, it was it was a totally backwards system than the one we have now. Are there any great ideas out there that weren't adopted that could have made the post office solvent? Any great ideas out there now that can be adopted? You know, if you had to, if you were hired to give some advice to the post office office to make them more economically feasible, what would you say? Well, the funny thing is I think people assume that the that the people who work at the postal service, they don't know really how to how to how to run it. And yeah. that and that they're 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 doing a lousy job and that's why they're reporting these big losses. But that's that's not really the case. There there are, you know, there, there's all sorts of red tape and laws and 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 dictating exactly what what, what they can and can't do. But 
I mean, ultimately, what they do need to do is they probably need to raise their prices so they have more revenue. Then they need to cut their costs so their costs aren't as high. They need to do something about costs that they're incurring, the, the, the future costs for their their retirees. Yeah, because, pensions, right? Because who because who knows what's going to happen? We don't really know what the mail volume is going to be in you know twenty or thirty years. And and every time the post office, you know, postal service predicts it, it's always lower than, than they think, especially ever, ever since the, the you know the mail volume started tumbling. You have these special interest groups, whether they're junk mail, junk mailers, you know, who basically want they don't want any price increases. And then you have you know the unions, and by the way, some of them are very smart too. They they, they know what's going on, but but they don't want anything that's going to reduce their membership. Right. And trying to close a post office, you know, I've had several several you know people say well, that's like World War Three. Any congressman yeah. is going to fight yeah. that. So like trying to close a navy base, but in one town. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So 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 I mean, in, in, unless they get some flexibility. In all those areas, things are just going to continue, you know, as they are right now, which is not good. And my advice would be just reconceptualize it, you critics of the post office. (laughs) Does the fire department and the police department, do they turn a profit? No, but they provide a service. And so does the post office. I know there's money changing hands, but things like Amtrak and things like the post office, maybe we shouldn't expect them to be profitable. doesn't mean they're bad. They're a service. The one thing is that the post office does make a lot of money. I believe the last year was over sixty billion dollars. So there's so there's, so there's all there's all kinds of money money coming in. I don't I don't think there's any reason why they couldn't at least break even, and that's what they're supposed to do. But I mean, the people who are running it, you know, Megan Brennan, the Postmaster General, she's worked there all, all her life. She knows how that system works works really well. She could make it work even better, and she and I'm sure she could break even if she was allowed to do that. Neither Snow Nor Rain, A History of the United States Post Office is the name of the book. Devin Leonard is its author in another one of our postcards. Thank you, Devin. Sure. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel, blaring out nonsense. Britain today saw the release of the Chilcot Report, an extensive, perhaps exhaustive look at the UK's run-up and prosecution of the war in Iraq. What it lacked in novelty, it made up for in heft, and its message might not have told the English anything new, but it did remind them and us once more of the incuriosity, the motivated reasoning, and the mendacity surrounding that war. But it was this defense put forth today by Tony Blair that drew my attention and my ire. I will never agree that those who died or were injured made their sacrifice in vain. You hear this a lot, that if the war was undertaken by improper means or, to put it bluntly, lost, then the soldiers, marines, airmen, and sailors who lost their lives will have died in vain. Not only do I object to this reasoning, I find it repellent. A soldier's duty is to follow orders, to serve under officials of superior rank, and they must ultimately listen to civilian leadership. The soldier does not serve in vain if the soldier serves, period. If the soldier serves, and if he does his or her duty, then the service can't be in vain. Because if we say the service was in vain based on the outcome, then we undermine the service. No one who fights in these wars, even the poorly conceived wars among them, died in vain. They died in service. They died following creeds and codes and ideals of the voluntary military. We can hope our leaders choose wisely. And by the way, we can hope that our press and our publics don't just give them a pass. But to have fought and died in a war that shouldn't have been fought doesn't mean that the fighters didn't die for anything. 
In this country, on Veterans Day, we honor all veterans of war, not just, as the Simpsons used to put it, veterans of popular wars. When servicemen came back from Vietnam, they were treated as pariahs. It was because too many had the false belief that they served in vain. The vanity of the project is of the politicians making, sometimes the commanders. Service on the part of the fighter who follows orders, who follows the rules of war, who does what's asked of him, can't be in vain. The conclusions of any post-war assessment cannot render a verdict on the heroism of those who fought. We don't go to Arlington Cemetery and sort the service members between the wars we won and the wars we didn't. The only vanity is on the part of leaders like Tony Blair, who chooses that empty dodge. As his countryman Tennyson wrote of another generation of fighters, theirs is not to make reply, theirs not to reason why, theirs but to do and die. That was about the Crimean War, a bloodbath that neither side really won in a permanent way. But the soldiers there, as soldiers have in the 150 years since, should be honored and not be smirched by allowing an outcome to define a sacrifice. And that's it for today's show. Mary Wilson produces the gist. She favors a trimester spiel schedule. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, advocates allowing the spiel to lie fallow as the government subsidizes us not to spiel. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, points to the lesson of Captain Crunch, Crunch Berries Only, as a cautionary tale for our idea of a spiel-only podcast. The gist, we're built to spiel. Umpuru de Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening.